But this morning, we're back in for our final week on this series, Truth Matters. And the reason for this particular series is that the elders of Four Oaks have recommended a transition from the Evangelical Free Statement of Faith to the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. So we've been taking the last 13 meetings, last 13 Sunday meetings, to talk about the different articles in this particular statement of faith. So thus far, we've explored God's existence, the the Trinity, election, the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I, I I think we've been surprised and how fresh and alive some of this material has been. You know, when you, when you think a statement of faith, you tend to think about just doctrines that are pulled together that can feel somewhat lifeless. But that's not been our experience at all. And so this morning we move to wrap up this series. But as we do that, I wanted to let you know that we have created a subsite at fourochschurch.com backslash statement where... We're going to post all of the articles of the Statement of Faith, the annotated articles, so there are scriptural references as well, as well, all the message links, the links to the pastor's meetings that we've had, anything related to this series. And we're doing that for two different reasons. Number one is that we realize that some of you may want to do some additional study. For instance, Eric Miller has annotated the entire Statement of Faith so that there are passages where we know exactly why that particular sentence, how it's related to Scripture. You may want to study further on that. That's available to you on the site. But also, it's to arm you to make an informed decision in the upcoming vote that we're going to have on the Statement of Faith. See, See, to be a member of Four Oaks is to be vested with the privilege of helping to determine what Statement of Faith we stand on as a local church. And we want to make sure that's an informed decision. We want to make sure you have what you need, and we want you to exercise that responsibility as a member of the church. So this coming week, you'll get a letter in the mail, and it'll just tell you a little bit more about the site. We want to encourage you to pray, to cry out to God, to read through the material again, and then to cast your vote at the right time. And we we, we appreciate you participating. We want you to participate in this, and are grateful that you are. But before we leave the series, we have one final path that we must travel together, and that's through the last article. And the last article of the Statement of Faith is titled, The Restoration of All Things. I'm going to read that in just a second, but while I'm doing that, why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 And while you are doing that, let me read through this final article of the Statement of Faith. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels when he will exercise his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell, as our Lord himself taught, and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb in the new heaven 
and the new earth, the home of righteousness. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ. All sin purged and its wretched effects forever banished. God will be all in all, and his people will be enthralled by the immediacy of his ineffable holiness, and everything will be to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, as important as a statement of faith may be, the passage that we're about to read together, it's important we know this, is far more important because it represents the very words of God. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, are, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The title of this morning's message is Truth Matters, God Restoring. God restoring. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray this morning that you would encourage us through these words and that you would use me as a vessel to encourage your people in the same way. That we might be inspired as we look ahead and it might affect the way we live here and now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes the best place to start a message is with the ideas that come out of it that are most blatantly obvious. And so let me just start by saying that Article 13, this final article in the Statement of Faith, is the final article because it's about final things. If you've been here during this series, you probably noticed that most of the articles had us looking back, had us looking back at the things that God has already accomplished for us. But this particular article shifts our gaze a bit. It shifts us from looking back to looking forward, to looking in the rearview mirror, which takes us back to looking out the windshield, looking forward at where we're going and what's happening up ahead. Because it gets us focused not on what God has already done, but on what God will do in the future. And so I want to encourage you right out of the gate. Don't don't check out during this message. Don't experience series fatigue. You know what I'm talking about? 13 messages on the statement of faith. If I hear the word statement of faith or the word article one more time, well, I'm heading into the kitchen to hit the wine with the kids. And we're opening up the refrigerator door. Listen, it being the final article does not make it incidental. 
It does not make it inconsequential. This article has enormous significance for our lives. Now, the Thessalonians discovered that truth in a difficult way. They were church plant. They started around AD 51, and they became, early on in their existence as a church plant, confused about final things. Some of them believed that Christ had already come, that he had already returned. Others felt that his coming was so imminent that the best way they could prepare was to quit their jobs and to check out, just go sit on the sidelines. Some were grieving the loss of a recent loved one or the recent loss of a loved one, and they wondered whether the dead would be left behind when Jesus came back. And so here we're encountering a church that is confused, that is anxious, there's sloth, there's air that's circulating around because of what they saw when they looked through the windshield, what they saw when they looked forward to Jesus Christ. And the Thessalonian church illustrates the very reason why this article is so important. And the way I would say that is to say that what we believe about the future affects the way we live in the present. What we believe about the future affects the way we live in the present. when When I was a kid, one of the popular TV programs was a program called Run for Your Life. Run for Your Life was about a lawyer. In fact, this this appeared in the first episode of it. He he was a lawyer. He was just kind of about making money. But then he was informed in the first episode that he had a terminal illness and that he, he only had 18 months to live, which is funny because the series lasted three years. So I don't even know how that worked. But he was told he had 18 months to live, and so he decides right then and there that he wants to do all of the things that he never had time to do. He wanted to squeeze life for all that it was worth. And the idea behind this series is that when he believed that his future was heading in a different direction, it changed the way that he lived in the present. See, this is why Paul wrote these words to the Thessalonians. This is also why the statement of faith ends with this particular article. Because what we believe about the future affects the way we live in the present. Now, as I studied this article, I saw three distinct, uh, let me borrow a musical term, movements within the article. Three distinct movements. The first two are seen and drawn directly from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So the three movements are, number one, Christ's magnificent return. Number two, our bodily resurrection and judgment. And number three, the preparation of his bride, of his church. So let's go back to the first one. Christ's magnificent return. Verse 16, Paul tells the Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. number of things to be gleaned from this passage, but again, let's start with the blatantly obvious and move from there to the more nuanced. So first, Christ's return will be personal. His return will be personal. Listen again. For the Lord himself will descend 
from heaven. In other words, this is not being delegated by Jesus to somebody else. There's no substitute that's coming and standing in the place of Jesus. He's not Skyping this one in. The Lord will come himself. Remember in the series in Acts when we looked at Acts chapter 2 and Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 2 and as soon as Jesus left, two angels standing there and the angel said to the people, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus himself ascended now, verse th- 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us that Jesus himself will descend in the same way he ascended. That his descent, his return, will be personal. So it's personal. Also, it's a bodily return. It's a bodily return. In other words, when he ascended, it wasn't, it wasn't just Jesus' spirit. It wasn't the ghost. It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't a clone. I mean, you can go any number of directions. It wasn't anything like that. It was Jesus embodied. It was God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And he was raised to a resurrection body as a result of of God moving upon him. He then ascended with a resurrection body. He now dwells in heaven in a resurrection body. And he will return in a resurrection body. So not only is his return personal, but his return is bodily as well. And then finally, his return will be glorious. It will be glorious. Look again, verse 16. He will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is not some kind of, you know, secret rendezvous with a few big name Christian celebrities that Jesus has arranged. This is not a private affair. This will be a global event. In fact, his coming is, think about it, his coming is accompanied by a command, which is loud, by an angel's voice, loud again, a trumpet, here we go, loud once more. He's got a trail of angelic beings coming behind him. Jesus said in verse 24, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So it will be glorious. It will be evident to all. His return will be personal. His return will be bodily. His return will be glorious. This is how the statement of faith says it. We believe in the personal glorious and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels. Now you hear that and you say, Dave, this is, this is awesome news. When's it going to happen? I have no idea. Uh, if you think you have an idea, can we talk after the meeting? Because you should have no idea either. And neither do the Oh, you know, what's the, what's the biblical word for these individuals? Idiots that are saying he's going to return next month. I mean, no disrespect, but we just have to realize how, how common this is. 
You know, I, I was converted in the seven, late 70s. Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. The whole end time scenario was built around the Soviet Union, how strategic the Soviet Union was going to be in the return of Christ. Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. In the 80s, it was 1988, because 1988 was 40 years, one generation after the establishment of Israel in 1948. Boy, that date came and passed as well. Then in the 90s, it was Harold Camping. 1994, Jesus is coming back. Well, 1994 came and went as well. This has always been something that circulated through the church ever since the ascension of Jesus Christ. Here's a little Bible tip. Keep this, tuck this in the back of your mind. Tuck this away. Be wary of anyone who tells you something that Jesus says they can't know. Just be wary of anyone who's coming out with that information. Jesus says, Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour. Okay, I think he wins there. See, the decisive accent from Jesus to Paul from Paul all the way to Revelation, is not on prediction, it's on preparation. And that's intentional by God. It's not about times and dates, it's about living today as if Jesus is going to come back tomorrow without knowing exactly when he's going to come back. That's why Paul starts 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live This is about how we ought to live. And God wants us to understand that the second coming is relevant enough that it should penetrate our daily existence, which is why I said earlier that what we believe in the future affects the way we live in the present. And our insistence on knowing we must know can oftentimes be nothing more than our foolish pride. We demand to know. As Americans, we have a right to know. God, do you want me to to file a Freedom of Information Act? I can get this information. I insist that you give it to me. Because if you give this to me, I can then live more autonomous from you. I can then live less dependent upon you. See, as sinners, we don't want to live preparing We want the cheat cheat sheet. We want the cheat sheet so we can live the way we want to live and then just prepare in the last moment, you know, like we do with tests. See, Paul's point and the article's point is that Jesus is coming back. Live today as if you believe it. Jesus is coming back. Approach your next conflict with your roommate as if you believe that. Jesus is coming back. Love your spouse as if you believe that. Jesus is coming back. Look over your spending habits as if that's really something you believe. So the first point is Christ's magnificent, glorious return. That's the first movement. Second movement is our bodily resurrection and judgment. Judgment. Now, remember, the the Thessalonians were concerned, and they had a specific concern. Some of them, a segment of them, had a concern that the dead would be left behind and that they wouldn't, therefore, enjoy Christ's return. And so Paul's coming right out of the gate, and he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Then he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll rise first. 
And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds. One event, by the way. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So what's happening here? Okay, what's happening? So what's being said is that Christ's return then triggers the resurrection of the dead, the the transformation of our bodies from our old bodies to our new bodies. Those, Those that die prior to Christ's return go straight to be with the Lord. You know, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. It goes straight to be with the Lord. But that's only temporary. It's only ever been designed to be temporary. And it's funny when you think about it because we can be so preoccupied with going to heaven. In fact, there are so many books being published these days about going to heaven that the the literary industry has come up with a whole new genre called heaven tourism. Heaven tourism, you know, those that kind of die and tour around heaven a little bit. So heaven is for real. You know, that, that book has sold 10 million copies, and there's a Hollywood movie that was produced around it. Proof of heaven on the bestseller list for 35 weeks. But, but heaven is just a, it's just a waiting area, basically. Heaven is it's like the airport that you hang around in when you're making a connecting flight. That's area, heaven is where we hang until we make the flight into our new bodies, into the new heaven and new earth. And you say, well, when does that happen? Well, it happens upon his return. Christ's return marks the moment when we take possession of our new bodies. And I say that on the authority of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where John, through the Holy Spirit, says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. I want you to think about this. I want you to just ponder this for a few minutes. You will receive a new body. And, and our old body, or our new body, will be just like Christ's new body. So if you want to get an idea where you're heading and what it's going to be like, we simply study Scripture for the period of time after Jesus rose from the dead and the kind of things that were happening and that he was doing in the body during that time. See, the disciples recognized Jesus for who he was, so his appearance was similar, and yet there's no doubt he was radically different. So we will be recognizable for who we were, and yet it's going to be totally different. It's not, it's not like God is just starting over, scrapping the, ah, oh, your old body had high blood pressure, we'll give you something completely new that doesn't look anything like that. No, our We will retain a kind of appearance of the old, but we'll get, you know, like a serious upgrade. You know, think about the difference between like maybe a bicycle and a 747. You know, both of them used for transportation. The second one, the 747 being a serious upgrade in transportation. That's what we're talking about. So when we see Jesus after he rose from the dead, he's got all the almost superhuman powers. I mean, he could walk through walls. He could suddenly appear. Isn't that going to be fun, just suddenly appearing? 
He could mask his identity. He's walking with the disciples on Emmaus Road, and all of a sudden, you know, he, they don't really know who they are. They're just having a chat. All of a sudden, he reveals himself to them. But he could also eat food, as he did with Peter on the beach, as he cooked the fish and sat and ate with him. He could still have wounds that were visible because he's the Lamb of God. But he also has the nail marks that he told Thomas, yeah, here I am, put your fingers in my hands. His body was vastly different, and yet it was remarkably similar. And so it's a bodily resurrection into a new body. And here's something we don't think about very often. This resurrection is for believers and unbelievers alike. That's why the statement of faith says, we believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Just? Unjust. Why for both? Well, that actually leads us to our next point, which is our bodily resurrection and judgment. There will be a judgment in the body. In fact, that's the next line in the statement of faith. The unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as our Lord himself taught and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. <clears throat> Paul said it this way. He said, for we must all appear, this is 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive his due for what's done in the body. So there is a summons. It is issued for every soul, every life. A demand to appear in the court of God. Because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all require the punishment of a righteous God. Now, stay with me. Some will have trusted Christ to pay the price for the punishment that God demanded. Most will have decided to pay it for themselves by spending eternity in hell. Yes, you can pay the punishment for your own sins. It's not like that option is not open to us. It is open to us. There are basically two options. Trust in what Christ did by dying a substitutionary death that we deserved. He, he sinned, or he, he, he saved us. He took the place for us. He substituted himself for us, or we paid ourselves. We pay it ourselves. And if it seems excessive to you that for some reason sin is so bad that it requires an eternity of punishment in a physical body, it may be because we have a low view of the righteousness of God. It may be because we have a low view of what it means that God is holy. It may be that we have a low view of the sinfulness of sin. And that sin is so bad, it took blood, the blood of God, to take it away. But listen, being exempt from that judgment for sins does not mean that there's no judgment for believers. I think this surprises Christians, that there is a judgment for believers. 
Everyone is judged. Even the angels are judged. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that we will even judge the angels? So the unbeliever is judged to determine his or her punishment. The believer is judged to determine his or her reward. So on that final day, the evidence in the courtroom will be, well, to use the words of Paul, for what we did while in the body. So yes, I mean, let's, let's just make sure we're clear. We don't believe in salvation by works. Our belief determines our destination. It is a belief by faith. It is a faith that is giving us, given us by the gift of God. Our belief determines our destination, but our works determine our reward. Our works determine our reward. And listen, that is a motivation that God sets before us. And he says, this is why I want you to serve. It's not the only reason. I want you to please me. I want you to obey me. I want you to conform to my image. I want you to walk in the earth in the same way that I walk. But I also want you to receive eternal rewards. Therefore, serve. Therefore, forgive one another. Therefore, preach the gospel to all nations. Therefore, give your money to the poor. Give your money to each other. Give your money to your local church. Not merely to obey, obedience is important, but because I have rewards stored up for you as well. Now, maybe, maybe you're beginning to see the fundamental point that I'm getting at through this whole message, that what we believe about the future affects how we live in the present. And that future judgment that I'm talking about is part of the reason why we live in community with each other. Let me explain to you what I mean. Part of living in community is, means that I'm going to live with you in such a way that I'm going to open up my life. That this isn't going to be a professional relationship. This isn't going to be this kind of thing where we just exist on the su- surface, have a superficial conversation about how, what we're really doing and how we're really doing. But I'm going to try to live an accountable life which means I'm going to be transparent about my temptations. It means I'm going to confess sin when I need to confess sin. It means I'm going to invite correction. And it means I'm going to accept responsibility when I need to accept responsibility. See, one of the wonderful things about having the gospel, about having Jesus as our Savior, is that the gospel frees us to be honest about who we really are. Because the gospel reminds us that our approval is not based on having it all together. It's not based on living a sinless life. It's not based on how many people like you, how many people agree with you. No, actually the gospel comes to us right where we live and declares for us that there was another who lived a perfect life so that we can live a life where we fail. Not that we're intending to fail, but we do fail because we're fallen. And that means... Because we have the approval of God, we can be honest with one another. We can be clean. We can we can come clean about the areas where we're imperfect, or we feel, or we fail. And so, you know, we we get real with one another. Accountability is a kind of spiritual regimen that not only humbles us, not only protects us as believers, but what it does is it. It trains us for the final exam. It trains us for that final day. You know, when I read this past week, the 
the, the tragic news about Josh Duggar and his name appearing in the Ashley Madison site. And, and if you're here and, and you don't know what the Ashley Madison site is, you are living a higher quality life than those that know because I, I hate to be the one to inform you that there is a site on the Internet where people that want to commit adultery can register. And there are millions and millions and millions of people that have registered. And so his name was found on the site, and then he subsequently confessed that. But as I heard that, my heart broke for that man, and I wondered, is there a church where there are people that love him enough and are courageous enough to ask the hard questions, to ask him about his marriage, to ask him about pornography. I wonder if you have people in your life. If you have constructed relationships in such a way that there are people that feel a kind of responsibility because of the way that you define friendship and because of the way that you want to walk in integrity before God, that feel like they, they have to come alongside of you and ask hard questions. I think it's a, it's a sign of maturity in the life of a believer when they have in orbit around them people that have the courage and the clarity and feel a sense of responsibility to ask simple questions. I wonder how Josh Duggar's life would be different if he had that. And, and actually, guys, let me just let me speak to you for a second. Um, guys, let me just, let's just make it clear. Who you are online is who you are. You, you want to know who a man, ladies, single ladies, you want to know what you're getting, find out what, what he's looking at online, look at, the, look at the way he spends money. Two wonderful windows to who a man really is. And then when he fails, does he talk to anybody about it? Or, or is he this kind of autonomous, independent person where everything kind of orbits around him and nobody actually gets in there? Great quote by Sinclair Ferguson. He said, if heaven is what we all desire, the greatest mistake we could make would be to not know what God has revealed about the way in which he will assess our lives. So, yes, there is a resurrection of the dead. Yes, there is a judgment. By standing and walking in community now, we prepare all the more for that day then. Final movement, the presentation of his bride. The statement of faith reads, On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ, all sin purged, and its wretched effects forever banished. See, the idea here is that not only is Jesus coming back, but he's coming back for a party. Jesus is coming back for a wedding, to be specific. For the Christian, that is not a day of terror because their, judge have been co their sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. So it's not a day of terror. It's actually a day of triumph because we have a groom who has gone before us 
and he has supplied for us all that we need as his bride. And we in this time are now making ourselves ready, but there is a day coming when the groom will come and he will take us home. Now th- think about that. Think about like, like this as the ultimate destination marriage, the destination wedding without all the drama that comes with it. And I read, I read just two days ago, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, um, Dominican Republic, destination wedding, day of the wedding, a hurricane comes through. But that wasn't nearly as bad as the stomach flu that the bride and the groom and all the guests had. So, what we have here is that Christ's return is going to be the the wedding day without all the drama. The wedding day without all the drama of the fall. The fall brings hurricanes. The fall brings flu bugs. The fall brings all of that. But this is Jesus' glorious return to marry his bride. And and the listeners, the New Testament ears that are hearing this, would have immediately associated the language of of bride and wedding and marriage with the ancient traditions where weddings really had three different parts. Weddings had the bridal price being paid, had the betrothal period, and then had the wedding feast. So what's happening here is there's... it's, it's, It's like God set marriage in creation because he wanted to establish an ongoing parable where we would understand Christ's love for the church and the way Christ relates to the church. So Christ comes and he pays the bridal price. He pays the price with his life. He pays the price with his blood. That when God wants to make a statement of the value of his creation and the glory that must redound back to himself, that he actually comes himself and he dies. And in so doing, he pays the bridal price for those that he loves, his bride. And then the betrothal period starts. The betrothal was the period where they're promised to one another. They're kind of technically married. Remember, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. She became pregnant. That was a big scandal. But it's the time where the groom goes away because he prepares a place for his bride. And then the two of them wait for the wedding feast. And then the wedding feast comes, and it's the final celebration. It's the the moment where eventually, right after that, the, 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 the wedding, the marriage is consummated. And that wedding day is vividly portrayed in Revelation chapter 19 where it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I mean, we sang this morning, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Alleluia. What a Savior. Because he's coming back for his bride. It's a bride that he's purchased. It's a bride that he is betrothed to. It's a bride that he's going to come back and take unto himself. Verse 18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, I've been living all week with the weight of those, those final words 
kind of resting upon me. Because I've wondered whether hearing the wonderful news that there's a second coming may not be wonderful news to some of us here today. In fact, you may feel like more of a mail-order bride, like an arranged marriage. You know, in that situation, they don't even meet each other until the day that the groom comes. And it may be that you're sitting here today and the second coming stirs nothing in you because you really don't know anything about the first coming. You don't understand the significance of that. Where the groom, Jesus, came first as a lamb, pure and unblemished and sinless, and offered himself as a substitute for our sins to receive the punishment that we deserved. He substituted himself. He lived a perfect life, deserved nothing but glory, and yet he died a sinner's death in our place. And that was for you. And you need to receive that by faith in Jesus Christ if you haven't. So that you don't get stuck thinking about the wrong appearing or you don't get stuck thinking about them in the wrong order. The reason the second appearing has such significance is because of the first appearing. We can't jump over that. Christ's impact on the world is not first experienced through Armageddon. It's first experienced through Christmas, through the Incarnation. So if you're here and this is discouraging news for you, it may be because you don't know the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And, and this morning may be the time where you have to, that you have to face that and receive him through faith. But I also want to talk, about a, talk to a second group as well. And that is that the news of his return doesn't encourage you because you're, you're, you're weary. You know, you're burdened. You're tired of anticipating, tired of waiting, you know, feeling impatient. I, I get that. I, I'm, I'm not a patient man. I, you know, I'm the first in the car, and then as soon as I get in the car, my hand goes on the horn. So I'm pushing the horn. It's waiting, 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 waiting for the kids to come out, waiting, waiting, waiting for the wife to come out. And then after a certain period of time, I'll push. But, boy, it's there. It's waiting. It's just sitting there. I'll drive 30 minutes down Capitol Circle just to avoid a traffic, any traffic at all on Thomasville, because I don't want to wait, don't hate to wait. But, but with God, there's something significant that he wants to do in our life. And there's only one way that he's chosen to get us there, and that's through waiting. It's the preparation that comes through waiting and waiting alone. This is how God says he does it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. I mean, I want my strength renewed. You do as well. You know, when I think about renewing my strength, I think about exercise and activity and recreation and progress and doing things. God says, no, no, you don't understand the way I do things. We're going to slow it down. We're going to wait. Because those who wait upon me. Those who allow the leaven of my work to work through their life, those allow, that allow time to build a relationship with me, those who, who allow patience to grow and to change and mature, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. There's a lot that gets accomplished in the kingdom of God through waiting. 
which is why it's such an important feature to the end of the world. Because waiting allows time for relationship. Waiting allows time for growth. Waiting allows time for maturity. It allows time to prepare creation for redemption. So we wait. Maybe you need encouragement this morning. Think about the truth of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Think about this statement of faith. Think about the second coming. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. May these words be an encouragement to you. Maybe you know somebody. Maybe your parents or your children or you have a friend who is discouraged right now, and they need to hear good news. They need to hear fresh news. They need to hear there's a second coming based upon a first coming. They need to know that this is a reality that they can anticipate. So let me just encourage you. Obey verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is supposed to have life for us. And I hope you're persuaded from God's word that this final article, as we wrap up this series, as we examine this final piece of the statement of faith, that this final article is a significant, is a substantial, is a consequential thing to believe. Because what we believe about the future affects the way we live in the present. Let's pray.